And I want to start a series on the life of Jacob. And the reason is because uh, when you start to think about your own heart, there's a little bit of Jacob in all of us. And uh, you'll see that as we get into our text. But this morning, Genesis 25, we'll be starting in verse 19. The title of our message today is Sibling Rivalry. There is perhaps no conflict which pitted brother against brother quite like the American Civil War. One of the tragedies of our recent times is that a lot of these monuments are being torn down which tell of the sacrifice and the story that is our nation. I've said before, history is not there for you to agree with or disagree with. It is there for you to learn from. And if we remove the basis of who we are as a people, then how do we know who we are? But we're talking about the Civil War, and on June the 16th, 1862, a battle near Charleston, South Carolina erupted. It was the Battle of Secessionville. The fighting was fierce as Union troops tried to capture that important Confederate port city of Charleston. And when the smoke had settled, the South had repulsed the Northern troops, and the bloody battle saw over 800 combined casualties, of course, with the North taking most of those. But what is most remarkable about this day was the amazing intersection of lives that took place on the battlefield. Two brothers fought at Secessionville. They were Alexander and James Campbell. One brother wore the Union navy blue, and the other donned the Confederate gray. That's right, two brothers from the same family, same last name, fighting on opposite ends of the conflict. Now their story is pretty interesting. Just humor me for a little bit. Together, these brothers were raised in Scotland and they came to America for a better life. Alexander settled in New York City working on the docks. He was the older brother. And the younger brother, James, moved to the south and became a stonemason in South Carolina. And when the Civil War erupted, both men joined to fight quickly. Each knew the other had joined the enemy army because they corresponded regularly. you imagine writing your brother or your sister or family member, knowing that the possibility is you might meet them on the battlefield one day? wasn't until after, though, the Battle of Secessionville that they learned that they had been on the same battlefield at the same time. And amazingly, we still have one of their letters that survived today. James wrote to Alexander, listen to this, quote, I was astonished to hear that you were the color bearer of the regiment that assaulted Secessionville. I was in the whole engagement doing my best to beat you. <laughs> well, that sounds like brothers, doesn't it? I hope that you and I will never again meet face to face as bitter enemies on the battlefield. But if such should be the case, you have but to discharge your duty to your cause, as I can assure you, I will strive to discharge my duty to my country and my cause. Wow. What a letter. Now, I mentioned that episode from history because in very much the same way, when we look at Isaac's family, he was the father over a civil war that erupted in his own household. Just as these two brothers fought over 150 years ago, there were two brothers here that we're going to meet in Genesis 25 who are the epitome of sibling rivalry. 
Now, this pattern of sibling rivalry is apparent as you read through the lives of the book of Genesis. It was present there in the early chapters, chapter 4, when we see Cain kill his brother Abel. It continues when we come to Abraham's family, for we see there that it is Isaac, the younger son, who's the son of promise, not Ishmael. And then when we come to Isaac's household, here is a family feud between two sons, Jacob and Esau, pitting brother against brother. Now, Jacob is one of the most important characters in the Old Testament. He's one of the four patriarchs that makes up the backbone of Genesis chapter 12 through Genesis 50. You have in that Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, and Joseph. Now, Abraham and Joseph we know well. They stand out like powerful bookends. But it seems like along the way, Isaac and Jacob kind of get lost or live in the shadow of those two great characters, Abraham and Joseph. That is probably because, in my estimation, of all of those four patriarchs, Jacob is the most flawed. He's got the most problems out of all. And as we trace his life, what we will discover is here is a man who had as many defeats as he did victories. And unlike some Bible characters who it seems like they just go from one spiritual victory to another, we don't really see that in Jacob's life. We see a man whose life begins as a struggle from the very start, coming out of his mother's womb, and it continues that way throughout his whole life. He comes out grabbing his brother's heel, and he dies settling old scores with his adult children. And in between all of that, here's a man who knows his share of sorrow and heartache, much of it self-inflicted. And I think when we look at Jacob, it hits really close to home because here's a guy who lived the way you and I live a lot of times, and that is two steps forward and one step back. And so I tell you this morning that Jacob was a schemer and a dreamer. He was a character who cheated his brother and wrestled with the angel of the Lord. He deceived his father, and yet he was chosen by God the Father to inherit a great spiritual blessing. I think in Jacob's life there's just as much encouragement as there is warning. And I think in his life is an example of mistakes and sin and deception. But yet when you turn to Hebrews 11 and you read the Hall of Faith, there is Jacob's name in the midst of all of those folks. Now, Jacob's story begins in Genesis 25. And as we open this chapter, uh, there's hope for you and me because as you read about this, you begin to understand very quickly that Jacob, like you and I, was born into a dysfunctional family. Somebody say amen if your family is messed up. Hey, it can't get any more redneck and twisted and messed up than the lives that we read about in the book of Genesis. And Isaac's household was a mess. So as we open up this chapter, there's several applications that I'm going to make about our lives. But I want us to first off just to understand the story. And so number one, as we read, notice with me Rebecca's struggle. Rebecca's struggle. And we'll begin in verse 19. Notice the text. And these are the generations of Isaac, Abraham's son. And Abraham fathered Isaac. And Isaac was 40 years old when he took Rebekah, the daughter of Bethuel, 
the Aramean of Padan Aram, the sister of Laban, the Amorean, to be his wife. And Isaac prayed to the Lord for his wife because, watch this, she was barren. And the Lord granted his prayer, and Rebekah, his wife, conceived. So our story opens up with a recurring problem that we see throughout the patriarchs, and that is barrenness. Just like her mother-in-law, you'll remember Sarah, she was unable to conceive, and now the same is true with Rebekah. And Rebekah's inability to give birth has presented Isaac with quite a dilemma. Because if you remember, God had promised Abraham, you're going to have descendants, and those descendants are going to be a great nation. But how can that be if Abraham's son Isaac and his wife are unable to conceive? How can the promise of God be fulfilled if she is barren? Now keep in mind as you read this that her biological clock is ticking. Isaac is 40 years old when he marries Rebekah. Now he's approaching 60. He has no male heir. And that means that as you read this story, Isaac has prayed and waited on God for nearly 20 years to answer a prayer. And don't you know that when you are in a waiting period, just like Isaac was at this point and Rebecca was, you ask that question, God, where are you? God, what are you doing? God, why is it taking so long? Amen? So what was God doing during those 20 years of waiting? Well, let me suggest a few things. First off, he was developing Isaac's faith. And then secondly, he was teaching Isaac patience. And then thirdly, he was arranging the circumstances in their lives so that when God did answer and God did come through, he would be the only one to receive credit for the miracle. The reason why God chose to close the wombs of women like Rebecca and Hannah and Sarah was because he's teaching a principle in the Scriptures that his promise, his blessing, isn't achieved by human effort, but it's all a part of his power and his grace. By the way, those same points help us understand why it seems that God is taking forever to move in our lives as well. God's delays are not God's denials. A waiting season, friend, is not a wasted season. God loves us too much to answer our prayers at any other time than the right time. He's never late. He's never early. He's always on time every time. And I like to use the acrostic wait, W-A-I-T. What can we do when God asks us to wait? Well, work is the first. We can serve God where we are. We don't stop serving God just because we're waiting on Him. We can A, act we can be obedient to do what we know God has asked us to do until He answers that prayer. We can I invite, we can allow God to change our heart. God, teach me the lessons that I need to learn while I'm waiting on you to come through. And T, we can trust. We can trust that God's timing is better than our own. Amen? Because while we are waiting, listen, God is working invisibly. God is working providentially. God is working quietly. Kind of reminds me of the story that I heard about a little boy who was standing at the end of an escalator. <laughs> and this woman who was walking through the shopping mall came through and she saw this little boy from a distance and there he was just looking down at this escalator as it continued to rotate. And this woman was curious and she was coming over to use the escalator. And she came close and she said, Son, 
Is everything okay down there? Are you lost? Can I help you? And the little boy said, no, ma'am. He said, my piece of bubble gum dropped out of my mouth, and I'm just waiting for it to come back through. <laughs> you see, friend, there's some things in life you can't speed up, right? You can't speed up the purposes of God. There's some things you just have to wait on Him until it comes around at the right time. And they have to wait on God to do what only He can do. Only God can open up doors. Only God can open up barren wounds. Only God can open up hard hearts. We have to wait. That was Rebecca's struggle. Then I want you to see, secondly, God's sovereignty. Rebecca's struggle and God's sovereignty. Verse 22 and 23, read with me. And the children struggled together within her, and she said, If it is thus, why is this happening to me? Hello, you ever prayed that in your life before? This hurts God. Why are you doing this to me? So she went to inquire of the Lord. Verse 23, And the Lord said to her, Two nations are in your womb, and two peoples from within you shall be divided. The one shall be stronger than the other, and the older shall serve the younger. Now I'm sure you've probably heard that saying before. Be careful what you ask God for because you just might get it. Amen. Rebecca wants to be a mother. Isaac prayed for her. God heard and God answered. But I think Rebecca got a little bit more than what she bargained for in the beginning. Instead of an easy pregnancy, if there is such a thing. My wife never had one of those. But thank God for modern drugs. <laughs> if there is such a thing as an easy pregnancy, she didn't get that. Rebecca got womb warfare. Two nations are warring within you, God told her. Now keep in mind, we know who Rebecca is. She wasn't some wilting flower. Rebecca is the gal in Genesis 24 who hauls up all those gallons and all those jars of water when Eliezer comes to visit her. This girl is tough as a pine knot. And so you know if she's in considerable pain, bless God, she's got to be hurting bad. And I don't even pretend. I know my wife's tougher than me, amen? Because I watched her give birth three times. And I'm glad that God called her to do it and not me. And all the men in the house said, Amen. Amen. Moms, we love you and we bless you. But the truth is, we're not as tough as you are. Now, Rebecca takes her problem to the Lord. And God tells her much more than any ultrasound could ever tell this woman. He tells her a few things. One shocking revelation after another. First off, hey, Rebecca... Newsflash, you're having twins. Surprise number one. I think if that would have happened in our, one of our first pregnancy, there had to have been day, three days of sitting in sackcloth and ashes and, and weeping. <laughs> first, you're having twins. Those are words that no first-time parent is ever prepared to hear. Amen? Second, God tells her, hey, your sons are going to be the heads of two nations. In other words... These children that you're having are going to shape the destinies of human history. Jacob is going to lead the nation of Israel. And Esau, he'll be the father of a nation known as the Edomites. And if you want a real interesting study, trace how the Edomites are a constant thorn in Israel's flesh all the way through the Old Testament. And then third, God says, there's going to be a great role reversal, Rebecca. The older will serve the younger. And you need to understand that in the ancient times... 
the firstborn was always given the inheritance right. And so he was to receive a double portion of inheritance. And the older was considered to be the head of the family when the patriarch died. But here God is saying that by my sovereign choice, I am flipping that. I am inverting what you might expect. And the younger is going to rule over the older. Now what you notice here as you study the book of Genesis is how much this pattern is repeated throughout the book. The offering of Cain in chapter 4. The older brother, it was rejected. Whereas the offering of the younger brother, Abel, was accepted. And then Isaac was chosen over his older brother, Ishmael, in chapter 17. Later on, when you get to the life of Joseph, it'll be Joseph, the youngest of Jacob's sons, who will be given that privileged coat of many colors, much to the hatred of his older brothers. Now, what's the theological lesson behind all this? These reversals. And God's pronouncement to Rebekah, it's this. It's the recurring theme of God's plan of grace. You see, grace is not something that God gives to us because of our age or our ancestry or our affluence or our ability or our achievement. Rather, God's blessing is extended to those who have no claim on it. I don't understand it all. I can't figure it out. God, why did you save me? Why did you choose me? I'll never understand. I just stand there with open hands and accept it and say, God, thank you for your sovereign grace in my life. That's what we see here in this passage as he tells Rebecca, hey, one of these sons is, is going to rule over the other, and it's the younger over the older. And I've, I've chosen one and not the other. Whenever I think about this doctrine, I always think about days in the playground. Wednesday night was always a great time for me as a youngster. Grew up at Pole Creek Baptist Church. And during those years, we had an outdoor basketball court. And I run around with a lot of older boys who were meaner and tougher and they beat me up a lot, but it made me tough, and it gave me some grit in my life. And I would always go to the basketball court on Wednesday night, and I wanted to run with the big boys. We'd always get ready to choose teams. Uh, some of you guys know exactly what I'm talking about. You have one captain and another captain, and the captains pick who they want, and you know who they go for? They go for the biggest. They go for the strongest. They go for the fastest. And here I am, little Derek McCarson, fourth grade, with big buck teeth and, 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 and big glasses, and I'm, I'm gangly and not very athletic, but I brought my basketball, bless God, my ACC basketball that I got at Hardy's for five bucks. Thanks, Dad. Uh, and what I was saying was, hey, guys, pick me. I just want to run with you. I want to be a part of your team. And, you know, a lot of times I got sent away in a heartbreak because I was a shrimp, and I wasn't good enough but you know what? I think about my God. My God didn't like that. It doesn't line people up and say, I'll only take the smartest. Uh, I'll only take the most religious. I'll only take the ones who were most cleaned up and got it together. I'm looking for only the rich ones. Only the strong ones. A God's sovereign grace. Friend, listen to me. It doesn't work like that. Uh, look who God chose for His team. You've got Abraham. He's the liar. You've got Jacob. He's the trickster. You've got Moses. Uh, he had blood on his hands. He was a murderer. You've got Jonah. Uh, he was the runner. 
stunner. Uh, you've got David. He was the adulterer. You've got Peter, the denier. Uh, that's not exactly, friend, a team of superstars. But friend, that's the way that God's grace works. He says, give me the dirty ones. Give me the weak ones. Give me the connivers and the, the liars and the thieves. Those are the ones that I want because when I clean them up and my sovereign grace goes to work in their life, you're not going to believe what I'm able to do with them. You see, friend, God's grace comes to us in spite of who we are and what world we were born into. God chooses the weak to show His strength. God chooses the broken ones to show His blessings. God chooses the foolish ones of the world to show His great wisdom. God chooses the worst and the dirtiest and the outcast and the unfit ones to show forth His marvelous grace. And I'm thankful for a God who knew me before the foundation of the earth. He knew everything about me, my personality, my failures, my sins, how many times I would disappoint Him. And He chose me anyway. And He said, that's my sovereign grace. Just as God chose you, and just as God selected one brother over another. Oh my. He called me. He saved me. He cleaned me up. And He uses me. Not because I'm great. Oh, not because I'm smart. Not because I'm wealthy or I'm of the right pedigree. It's in spite of all those things. So we see God's sovereignty. And we see Rebecca's struggle. But then thirdly, am I preaching to anybody today? I want you to notice with me Isaac's sons. Isaac's sons. Notice what happens in verse 24. For when her days to give birth were completed, behold... There were twins in her womb. And the first came out red, all his body like a hairy cloak, so that they called his name Esau. And afterward, his brother came out with his hand holding Esau's heel, and so his name was called Jacob. And Isaac was 60 years old when she bore them. When the boys grew up, Esau was a skilled hunter, a man of the field, while Jacob was a quiet man dwelling in tents. And Isaac loved Esau because he ate of his game, but Rebekah loved Jacob. So when these babies are finally born, Isaac and Rebekah get another shock. The firstborn comes out fuzzy and red-headed, almost like a wild animal. And that's the play on words. He's called Esau. It means red. Then the second son comes out holding, grasping onto Esau's heel. And thus the name Jacob. And Jacob's name, listen to this, means heel grabber, supplanter, trickster, usurper. And the way that these boys came into the world reveals something of their character and their destiny. Let's talk about Esau first. Esau is wild and untamed. In fact, Esau, if he were alive today, he would be Jeremiah Johnson. <laughs> Uh, I think if Esau were alive today, he'd be the guy driving the big F-150 with mud tires and the gun rack in the back. Amen? He's a simple man. What you see is what you get. The Bible tells us that he was a talented hunter. He was a man of the field. And then on the opposite end of the spectrum, you have Jacob. You couldn't get more opposite than Esau. Here's a guy, his mind is always working. 
probably a kind of child that you weren't able to leave alone in the house or in the tent because they'd always be getting into something. Jacob is, is intelligent. He's neat and orderly. He's a homebody. The Bible says he stayed in tents. and well, That's just an ancient way of telling us that he's a mama's boy <laughs> through and through. Got any mama's boys in here? That's okay. I, I was definitely one for a while. So Jacob was a mama's boy through and through. And the, the differences in these children, is it not amazing, you parents who have multiple kids, how the kids can come from the same parents, same mama, and yet when you notice the children and you study their development, they're complete opposites. I, we, we're already noticing these differences in, in our children. You know, for instance, Abigail, sister, she's a great eater. You can put anything in front of her and she'll eat it. Daniel is so picky. If it's not plain Jane, plain vanilla, plain noodles, plain bread, he doesn't want anything on. He's so picky about what he eats. And they're a complete opposite in that regard. Uh, sister, she despises doing chores. It's a really a chore to get her to do her chores. And you basically have to do them for her. But Daniel... Daniel's a hard worker. We don't have any trouble. I can tell him something to do. Boom, he's gone. He's got it done. And then he wants a little something for it, you know. <laughs> Ask Clifford about that. Ask Papa Joe and Papa Mark about that. Uh, but, there's, but they're also they're, they're very different in their desires. And that's just because they're, one's a boy and one's a girl. Daniel, he's, he's an inquisitive. He's a builder. He loves Legos. He can sit for hours in his room putting together all these creations. And then... And then the sister, oh, she's Princess Glitter. It's all about sparkles and dress up and Frozen and the Disney princess. And it's fun, isn't it? It's great fun to see these differences. But I will tell you there's one thing that they both have in common, and that is both of my children love to argue, and that's what I say they get it from their mama. <laughs> they all like to argue. So, but th this is what you see here in the, this text, Isaac's sons. And notice the time bomb that Isaac and Rebekah plant in their own house. They make the greatest mistake that a parent can make. They begin to play favorites. You want to set your child up for future counseling? and a whole host of problems one day, you treat one child differently than another child in your household, and you will begin to see pain and heartache and inferiority complex. Rebecca loves her quiet son Jacob. Oh, but Isaac, thinking with his stomach, loves Esau because he's a man's man, and he brings home the bacon and he feeds me that good meat. And so these are Isaac's sons, and we're going to see some big-time problems result from this dysfunctional family. And so we go to number four now. As we close today, I hope you're still with me. Number four, I want you to see Rebecca's struggle, God's sovereignty, Isaac's sons, and then number four, Jacob's scheme. Jacob's scheme, verse 29. And once when Jacob was cooking stew... Esau came in from the field and he was exhausted. And Esau said to Jacob, Let me eat some of that red stew for I'm exhausted. Therefore, his name shall be called Edom. And Jacob said, 
will sell me your birthright now. And Esau said, I am about to die. Of what use is a birthright to me? And Jacob said, swear to me now. So he swore to him and sold his birthright to Jacob. And then Jacob gave Esau bread and lentil stew. And he ate and drank and rose and went his way. Thus Esau despised his birthright. Oh my goodness, what has happened? The character defects of these brothers now come into play as they are teenage boys. Esau comes home from the field, from hunting. He's exhausted, he's hungry, he's empty-handed. His stomach is growling. Jacob, knowing of his brother's impulsive and carnal tendencies, finds this a golden opportunity to deceive his brother. Jacob has always wanted that birthright. I want the inheritance. I, I want what comes with that. And he's willing to deceive and connive to get it. And so the heel grabber, Jacob, he's so slick. Why, here's a guy who could sell ice to an Eskimo. And once again, notice the irony. It's Esau who's supposed to be the skilled hunter, right? And yet he's the one that's tricked and trapped by his brother. and He becomes a victim of his own appetite. Now, think about this trade. A birthright for a bowl of soup. Now, does that sound like a good, sound, fair trade? Or is that just ridiculous? This has got to be one of the dumbest trades of all time. Like when uh, the Boston Red Sox traded away Babe Ruth to the New York Yankees. Or when the Charlotte Hornets, who will forever be cursed, they passed on Kobe Bryant. This was a dumb trade. Esau does not think about what he is giving away in this moment. And by taking this soup, we learn a whole lot about these two brothers, don't we? We learn about Esau's carnal tendencies, and then we see a lot about Jacob, the wheeler and dealer. Let's think about this. Esau shows that he's a man that's governed by his passions. Outwardly, he's strong, he's confident, he's hairy, he's manly. But inside, he is spiritually shallow. He is willing to trade something of tremendous value for a bowl of lentils. The writer in Hebrews 12 points this out, by the way. Listen to what Hebrews 12 says in verse 15. See to it that no one is sexually immoral or unholy like Esau, who sold his birthright for a single meal. For you know that afterward, when he desired to inherit the blessing, he was rejected, for he found no chance to repent. Though he sought it with tears. In other words, what the Bible is telling us in that passage in Hebrew is, don't be like Esau. What is it saying to you and I? It's saying this. What is that birthright? The birthright included a whole lot more than land and money. Especially in this family. Because God was involved and God had given a promise. This meant a place in the messianic line. And the birthright was about being a part of that link of chains that would lead to Jesus Christ, the Messiah, the Chosen One, the Redeemer of all humanity. And Esau esteemed his birthright so little that he said, I'll trade that just for something to put in my belly. Let me ask you something, friend. You ever made a trade like that before in your life? 
You've been like Esau, and you made a raw deal with your flesh, or with the world, or with Satan, and you came out on the other end a lot more poor than you thought. We've all been like Esau, and we've looked at a situation, and we've traded the physical for the spiritual, the temporal for the eternal. We've looked at sin, and we've traded our integrity for a moment of pleasure. We've been in that situation where we've had an opportunity to serve Christ, and instead of choosing that, we've chosen to gratify ourselves and do something that we wanted to do rather than serve God. We've looked at a situation in our life and said, uh, but I want to be happy, God, but I want my need met. And God, I, I don't see you meeting that. And so God, I'll get into a relationship that I know you won't bless. And I'll get into a job that I know you're not leading me to because God, I'm looking out for me. And I don't trust you in this moment, God, because you're not doing anything in my life. And we can make a deal just like Esau and trade away the blessing of God for a moment of pleasure in sin. And you say, well, I've never done that. Well, maybe you're like Jacob. Maybe you are more like Jacob, the guy who would always be at the top of the pyramid scheme. Get those scammer phone calls. You get those? Uh, Mr. McCarson, we're calling you about your warranty on your vehicle. My vehicle's been paid off for 10 years. Of course I don't have a warranty. Jacob is that guy at the top of the pyramid scheme taking advantage of everybody. And Jacob took advantage of his witless brother in order to obtain, listen, in order to obtain something that God had already promised him. The blessing was Jacob's to have. God didn't need that kind of help. Maybe you're like Jacob. You've manipulated people and circumstances your whole life because you think you have been given the short end of the stick. And friend, you're just like Jacob. But you know what? God's blessings don't come by our human intelligence and our human work. They come by faith. Trusting God. So which brother are you more like today? The one who takes the raw deal and says, I'll take it now rather than later? Or are you the other one who said, I can get the better of this situation. I can help God out. And you get ahead of God. So here's three applications. What have we learned from all of this? There's three lessons. Number one is this. First application as we finish today. We must wait for God's will to be done God's way. A good portion of Jacob's life will be lived in the shadows of deception and manipulation which is going to come back to haunt him. And if you're waiting, listen, if you're in a season where you are waiting for God to come through for you, don't get ahead of Him. God does not need your help to work that thing out. Wait on Him. Let God bring the blessing in His own way, in His own timing, because He'll give you the best without all the baggage and the heartache and the regret. And then the next application is this. Watch this, friend. This is so important. Sin can have the appearance of temporary success. By all appearances, as you end this story, it looks like 
hey, Jacob won. It worked. The lie, the scheme, it did what it was accomplished to do. Let me tell you something. God never lets His children sin successfully. And if you are truly His, and you belong to Him, and you're in a sin situation, and you think, well, I got away with it that time, let's try that again. Friend, you're playing with fire. Sin always has the appearance of success in the beginning, but do not be deceived. God is not mocked, for whatsoever a man sows, that shall he also reap. There's a payday someday, and Jacob is going to rue the day that he ever took advantage of his brother. Sin is pleasurable for a season, but the bill always comes due. And there's always more to pay. Sin will take you farther than you wanted to go, teach you more than you wanted to know, keep you longer than you wanted to stay, and cost you more than you ever wanted to pay. Here's the third application. The desire of the flesh is to trade the temporal for the eternal. Listen to this story. Max Lucado tells it in one of his books. True story. A group of burglars broke into a swanky department store in New York City. Security cameras showed that the intruders took nothing. Now who breaks into a store and doesn't steal anything? But they walked around the store for hours as if they were window shopping. Instead of stealing anything, he said, they changed the cost of everything. Values were exchanged. These pranksters took the tag off a $395 camera and stuck it on a $5 box of stationery. The $595 sticker on the paperback book was removed and placed on an outboard motor. They repriced nearly everything in the store. But the crazier part of the story took place the next morning, the author said. The store opened as usual. Customers began to shop. The store functioned as normal for hours before anyone noticed what had happened. Some of the people got great bargains. Michael, wouldn't you like to have been the guy that got the outboard motor? Others got fleeced. For four hours, no one noticed that all the values in the store had been swapped. Can't write this stuff. Here's the point. We live in a world where the value system has been traded. The value system of our world has been exchanged, has been hijacked. The price tags have been switched. The items that God most values and most treasures are deemed by the world to be worthless. And the things that God hates, the world has taken and put a great price tag on and said, this is what you should strive for. The items of the world values are backwards. The thing that God values most of all, the gospel of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, is foolishness to the Greek and a stumbling block to the Jew. And you're either one brother or the other. Both equally lost. Both equally in need of God's salvation. And yet we have to make that decision about the distorted value system of our world. If we live like Esau did and trade the temporal pleasures of sin and the things that we can get now, 
we'll be the big losers. Jesus said it like this, What if a man were to gain the whole world and lose his soul? You see, when men reject God's offer of eternal life through Jesus Christ, or when believers place more value on worldly material blessings than they do eternal realities, we play into the distorted value system. The soul is forever and the gospel promises eternal treasure in Christ. Sin is fleeting and its wages, oh, the wages of sin is what? It's death. But Satan changes the value on it and says, it won't hurt you this time. I just take one little bit, you'll like it. Look, everybody else is doing it. You can get away with this. Nobody's watching. You'll be the exception to the rule. How about your God? He's abandoned you. He's not answering you. You might as well indulge and, and have a little bit of happiness in your life. And that's the value system that Satan has put over our world. And just like Esau who took the temporal for the eternal, we have to be wise enough to look at it and say, whoa, 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 whoa. I have to choose eternal realities. The gospel, repentance. I have to see things for what they really are and choose wisely because it makes all the difference in eternity. As our musicians are coming, maybe you're thinking about that right now. Oh, you've made a raw deal. You've traded something in your life or you've manipulated and, and, and you've connived people for so long. You've tried to work things out in your own intelligence and life isn't what you thought it would be. Well, I'm telling you today, you can come to Jesus Christ. Esau needed grace. Jacob needed grace. Whichever side of the equation you are on, if you need that forgiveness, if you need to make that different change, that repentance in your life, you can come to Jesus. and There's still hope in Him. There's still forgiveness in Him. There's still mercy in Him. Let me tell you something. You can come to Jesus with your sin and your rags and your ruin and your ashes. And He'll take it and He'll say, I give you garments of white. I give you a new start. I give you beauty from your ashes. I give you a second chance. That's a trade that I need to take. Amen? The greatest offer ever made by the greatest man who ever lived Jesus Christ you need to make that today you stand and sing with us just as I am